Matthew 25. Jesus is speaking in this text in the final days before his death and resurrection. And he's giving some uh, warnings and prophecies and encouragement to both Israel, who he has been uh, coming to be the Messiah, and to the future church. There's a transition that's taking place here um, as Jesus goes to the cross and rises again. uh, That Israel, for a large part, has rejected him. Uh, Some have believed, but many have rejected him. The religious leaders, the rulers of Israel, have rejected Jesus. And now the gospel is taking a different path, and the gospel is now going to the Gentiles. And he's talking to both groups at this point. He's talking to the Jews about this, and he's talking to the Gentiles about this, about being stewards of his kingdom, about being people who, as he goes back to heaven, will take care of what he has left and the work that he has given us and and bestowed on us to advance the gospel and to go make disciples. Now, for Israel, some had believed in him, but so many had rejected him, which always seemed to be kind of true of Israel. But those who believed were given a great responsibility um, to continue uh, the Jewish faith and to continue to show that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the truth, and to now uh, reach Jews with the gospel and to partner with the Gentiles as the church form to advance the gospel out into the world. The Gentiles' job was more going out, where the Jews were going to really stay in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Now the Gentile believers were then going to spread out and go into the uttermost parts of the world. So the church is being birthed. The the Jewish nation and the Gentile nation are being combined, as we see in the book of Galatians. And now the work of the ministry is laid on Christ's people. And that's really what this passage is about, um, that, that the only way that that can happen, the only way that this transaction can take place is because of Jesus Christ. These songs that we sang this morning, again, the Lord led us to the songs because they describe well, really, what this passage is about. The amazing grace of God, the fact that Christ has provided salvation for us. The fact that there's no way that we can ever attain salvation on our own. We're we're completely helpless, we're completely hopeless. But because of Him, we're delivered from sin, we're freed out of bondage, we're given a new relationship with God that is fully restored, and we are, are put in a position of responsibility now to go tell other people about it. And because of that, we have this awesome calling. And the calling can seem scary and intimidating and sobering, or we can look at it and say, this is an amazing responsibility that God has given to us who really don't seem worthy of it and may be nervous about it, but God has empowered us with His Spirit to go serve Him faithfully and to do an amazing work of leading people to trust in Him. We've been given an unbelievable gift. I keep coming back to that this morning. It keeps, it's, it's almost like getting saved again, how fresh it is of the work that God has done and the salvation and the unimaginable gift of love and mercy that God has given to us. But, but what do we do with that? We receive it, we rejoice in it, we love it, we, we love how it's saved us, but, but God's gift of salvation can't just be about our freedom and consumption. There has to be an outgrowth from it. There has to be something now that takes place 
because we've been saved. It has to affect us so powerfully that we don't even need to be told now that there's an assignment. Of course there's an assignment. Of course we've got to tell other people about it. Of course we've got to do something with what God has given to us. That we're so compelled by gratitude and so compelled by, by the change that's taken place in our lives that we're now looking for ways to honor the investment that God's made into our lives. That word has been really um, on my heart the last couple days, the word investment. It's not crass or, or unusual to say that God has invested in us, that God has, has made a deposit in our lives. Because when you think about Scripture and what it says about our salvation, every word is related to, to this investment transaction. We're bought with a price. We're purchased by the blood of Christ. Our debt has been paid. We're secured by His Spirit. And now we're even called bondservants. Everything points to the fact that God has invested eternally into our soul. And considering what it cost Jesus Christ to, to, to accomplish that, to give us that gift, then it is absolutely reasonable that God expects a return on His investment. What has God done for your life this morning? Who were you before Christ? Maybe for some of you that's very recent. Maybe it's really fresh. Maybe you've been saved, uh, let's say, less than five or ten years. And, and you remember clearly what it was like that moment where you gave your heart to Christ and, and your life changed and it's still kind of fresh and new. Maybe some of you have been saved decade upon decades. I would say 41 years. I remember the day, I remember going forward down on 4th Street in Charlotte uh, and, and walking up to my dad, I was crying. I, I remember that day very, very clearly. But, but the understanding of the eternal transaction, I didn't get it as much now then as I do now. Now it's more precious. Now it's more wonderful because I realize what Christ had to give to redeem me from sin. So because of that, what do we do with it? Well, let's look at the example that Jesus gives us here in the parable. Matthew chapter 25, let's start in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. The one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. 
His master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does shall have be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus is continuing his thought. If you look back at verse 1, talking about the kingdom of heaven. And talking about how the kingdom of heaven is going to be established and how he's going to come back. And, and you may have heard the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. They're basically interchangeable in scripture. Uh, but you may not know really fully what it means. Whenever Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's really talking primarily about his eternal kingdom. And every believer is a citizen of that. It, it encompasses his absolute power and his authority over everything, over the earth and the heavens and, and everything that exists and even what doesn't. He is the Lord of all those things. That is his kingdom. But there's also an expression of that kingdom here on earth. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Because not only will Jesus come back someday and reign over all the earth, but until then, as citizens of the eternal kingdom, our calling is to represent Christ and to tell other people that they need to trust him too and become part of the kingdom too. So in these two passages, verses 1 to 13 and then verses 14 to 30, what we read, Jesus is talking about the preparation for his return and the fact that we need to be ready and productive as we anticipate that day. Now, the fact that we're servants who don't even deserve the freedom, and we don't deserve the calling that he's given to us, but he's done it because he's gracious and loving, and he sacrificed for us. Now, now this is a, a humbling and powerful incentive to us, that because Jesus has paid it all, what's the next line? All to him I owe. In other words, because of what Christ has done, because of his change in our lives, because he set us free, as we just sang, from sin and from bondage and from death and from hell forever, now we're given a responsibility by him that because of our love for him and because of our freedom, now that's our motivation and our incentive to go serve him. We have to know that he loves us. We have to know that he cares about us because if he didn't, he would have given us nothing. But I want you to look back. Look at verse 14 for a second because not only does he save us, which would be enough, but it says in verse 14 that he entrusts us. Now that's a great word in the Greek. It literally means to give someone the power to keep, use, take care of, and manage. So the text says that Jesus entrusts us. He gives us the power and the authority to keep, use, take care of, and manage the work of representing him and advancing his kingdom. He's the master that's gone away. He's gone back to heaven like the master in the parable. And he's going to come back. And while he's gone, he gives us his spirit to empower us and to strengthen us and teach us. And then he entrusts us with the responsibility to take care of building his kingdom. Now that's an awesome responsibility. And it's a humbling responsibility. And yet it is our responsibility. 
So before we study what that means to us, let's clarify what Jesus isn't talking about because there's a lot of uh, confusion about this passage. What do the talents mean? What's he talking about? And, and there have been many different interpretations. I researched them this week, all the div- kind of different interpretations of this passage. But I believe this passage has really been uh, misunderstood in some ways or kind of... Uh, there's kind of been a cursory view of the text without really diving into his meaning. So, first of all, let's understand what he's talking about. Look back at the text. He says, talents here. Now, the talent for a Jew in Jesus' time was a unit of money. So, he's talking here in, in the parable in the sense of teaching about this principle. He's talking about an investment that has been made uh, more than anything, not, don't get caught up in the fact that it's money. He's talking about investing into these servants. Now, some people have concluded that, that Jesus is talking about our natural gifts and our standing. So because somebody gets five talents and becomes, somebody gets two, and because somebody gets one, Jesus is talking about the fact that some of us are born into advantage situations, and some of us aren't, and that's why there's a, a disparity between five, two, and one. The reason that's a bad interpretation of this text is because the Bible is clear that any kind of perceived personal advantage, whether it's wealth or race or social standing or where you live or whatever, that's not the key to godliness. The Bible never argues that being wealthy is a key to godliness. In fact, it argues just the opposite. It says it's harder for a rich man to enter into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's never about race because people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to worship God, right? Heaven is not full of white people. Come on, say amen to that. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be there praising God. And that's what our church should be. It should be every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every race. Because the church is made up of the body of Christ. So race isn't an advantage. There's no, there's no personal prerogative that we gain because we're white or black or Asian or, or whatever. And it's not about social standing. Because Jesus never argues for that. There's never any sense that being popular is important. In fact, he says that men will hate us because of him. So if we're really doing our job as believers, we're not going to be popular at all. So this is not about our natural advantage. And it's really not even about our spiritual gifts, which is the other interpretation that people have given, that that some have more gifts than others. The Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 12 that everybody has gifts. Every believer in this room has spiritual gifts, and all are useful for the Lord. Some have the gift of teaching. Some have the gift of prophecy. Some have the gift of faith. And, and they all work together for the body. Now, it may seem like, well, that person has more gifts than me, or, or their gifts are used more prominently. But here's the point. Our gifts are not used for our glory. I want to say that again. Our gifts are not used for our glory. If I have the gift of preaching and teaching, and believe me, that's still in question, if I have the gift of preaching and teaching, I'm not up here to advance myself or to be well-known or to try to sell books or to be on TV or to be known around the Internet. The, the, the point is not so people would see me. The point is that I would be a vessel so people would see Christ. 
The gifts that we have are to be used. It, those who sing and play instruments, which I wish I could do. I wish I could sit down like either of these and play the piano and, and worship the Lord that way. But I can't. But they're up here to draw focus and praise to the Lord. The moment they draw focus and praise to themselves, they're not playing anymore. If you have the gift of hospitality, it's not to make a show of yourself and get people to know you. It's to greet people and show them grace. If you have the gift of mercy, it's about spreading mercy to another person. If you have the gift of prophecy, it's not about saying, look at me, I can tell you what the Lord's doing. It is about promoting Christ. And we have to be careful that we don't misuse our gifts in any way to promote ourselves. Our spiritual gifts are to be used faithfully and effectively to fulfill the calling, look back at verse 14, that Christ has entrusted us with. Now, the reason there's been some confusion about this passage and and kind of some different interpretations is because of verse 15. Because in verse 15, Jesus says that each was given according to their ability. Now, as, as uh, people who speak English, when we hear the word ability, what do we think? We think skills or, or, or gifting, right? Each is giving according to their ability. Well, there it is. That person has more ability to me, so they've been given more prominence. But the meaning of the Greek word is not skill. And that's where it's important when we study Scripture and we see a word like that that's very English to us, we need to use the resources, uh, especially that are on the Internet. Two clicks, you can find out the meaning of this word. And the meaning of the word is internal power. Now listen, this is very important. It's internal power as it relates to the moral virtue of the soul. So here's what I believe, and I think the Lord has given some insight this week. Here's what I believe Jesus is teaching when he talks about the person with the five talents and the two talents and the one talents. I believe that he's teaching about three types of spiritual people. The man who gets the five talents represents those who believe in Christ and are spiritually mature in their soul. They've proven that they are faithful to the Lord and will continue to be faithful to do so, which is why God has given them responsibility. The parable of the two talents, the man with the two talents, represents those who believe in Christ but are still growing in their faith. And they're faithful to the Lord and they're learning what it is to mature and they're serving the Lord more faithfully every day. And God gives them responsibility. Maybe not as much responsibility as the person who's very mature, but he's building them up and strengthening them by his spirit. And then the man with the one talent represents someone who does not believe in Christ. But here's the interesting thing. They're given the opportunity that all people have. They're given the opportunity to trust in Christ and to receive the spiritual investment that God has made to all of us through Christ. But the person with the one talent rejects that gift and squanders the opportunity. Now the text supports this in how we see each person react to the talents that God has given to them. Notice the first servant. Go into the text now. Notice uh, when you see uh, verse 16. Sorry about that. The first servant, it says, immediately acts to honor the investment. Now, the Spirit of God never uses words accidentally. There's never an extra word that didn't need to be put in that he just threw in there for kicks. He uses the word immediately, Because this word and this mature believer indicates priority and passion. 
It shows that someone who loves the Lord honors the master and acts on his trust, his entrusting of this responsibility without any hesitation. There's nothing more important. There's no distractions. There's no other priorities. There's, there's no delay. There's no alternative. A mature believer, when they're given an assignment from the Lord, goes ahead without hesitation, trusting that this is from the Lord. And notice that it's not passive. It's a fervent effort to be fruitful and to honor the investment by bringing in a return. Now again, this is not about money. The Lord doesn't always give us money. The Lord says that love of money is the root of all evil. Material possessions don't matter one bit to the Lord. He does not care about the sale of Target on Black Friday. He doesn't. Because what's going to happen to all that's on the earth? It's going to be burned up. It's going to go away. You're not going to take the 50-inch TV with you to heaven. I don't care if you do get it for $159. Everything that we have here will be burned up. That's why Jesus says in Mark, uh, Matthew 6, don't lay up to yourself treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures, tell me where, in heaven. So Jesus doesn't, he's not talking about material possessions here. He's talking about a spiritual investment that the first servant immediately acts on. Now look at the second servant. He's maturing, and he basically does the same thing. We don't see the word immediately here, but he does act quickly, and he does act decisively, and he also reinvests. But the third man, he doesn't. He admits that he's acting out of fear, and fear breeds distrust, and distrust means uh, breeds a spirit of dishonor. He looks at the gift that he's been given, the opportunity he's been given, the investment that has been placed into his life, and he doesn't see any value in it. He doesn't see any honor in it. He wants nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter to him. He's an unwilling caretaker of the investment. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, appreciate it in any way, and that's why he buries it. He doesn't even put it in a bank. When the master comes back, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? I would have gained a little bit of interest. But he says, I don't care about it. It means nothing to me. I'm going to bury it in the ground, and I'm going to wait until you come back, and then I'll just give it back to you a little bit dirtier. Out of sight, out of mind, it doesn't matter. Now that is a clear picture of spiritual rejection of Christ. It's a clear picture of spiritual indifference and the hostility that many people feel this morning toward God. That, that he's harsh and he's uh, 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 demanding too much of us by trusting in him. And following his word goes way too far. I shouldn't have to do that. So, so there's instead of a sense of gratitude and appreciation and humility that God has been gracious to us. Instead there's a flat out rejection. He never trusts the master, he never puts his confidence, and he never responds to the gift. Now, as I studied that, I was hit again by the thought, and this has been a very, very salient thought over the last eight or nine weeks that we've been studying, that again, with the Lord, it's all or nothing. God despises what is lukewarm. Either we love him and we serve him wholeheartedly, or we're basically indifferent and unchanged. And this is not the only place that Jesus teaches this. We studied a few weeks ago, depart from me. I never knew you because you're spiritually hypocritical. 
We've seen that you can't serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other, or you hate one and love the other. And we've seen that if you don't bear fruit, and you don't love me more than anything else and anyone else, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. The more we study the words of Christ, and this is not popular in our day, but the more we study the words of Christ, the more we see a lack of latitude for in-between spirituality. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as walking the fence. There's no such thing as in the world with one foot and in Christ with another. There's no such thing as just riding the gray in the middle between holiness and sin. The Bible doesn't give any latitude for that. And that may seem radical and it may seem harsh of Jesus. But listen, this is all throughout the Bible from Elijah to Saul to Daniel to Jesus to Corinth to Revelation. It's all throughout Scripture. Jesus says, I gave you an investment. What are you doing with it? Are you living it? Are you loving it? Are you honoring it? Are, are you giving yourself to it wholeheartedly so you show your, your love and your value for me? Or are you just burying it in the ground and saying, whatever? And that really calls to question our love and commitment for the Lord. He expects his children to live for him and to serve him faithfully. And he not only commands it, he expects it. He commands it because he deserves it. And we should be so full of love. I'm so glad we sang those songs this morning because it filled our heart with love and gratitude and humility and, and focus on what Jesus Christ has done and there is nothing more important to you today, there is nothing more important to you this week as a believer than the love of Christ. And if we need one more incentive, and we need a further push beyond that, then we get the final push in verse 19, because he says, someday I'm coming back. And someday I'm going to assess what you have done. Notice in verse 19 that when the master returns, he wants to settle up. All right, I'm back. I gave you opportunity. I gave you responsibility. What did you do with it? What did you do with the time and the resources and the opportunity that I gave you, the responsibility that I gave you? See, this is about what we do with Christ. He's the gift Every person has the opportunity to accept him. Nobody's left out this morning. Christ didn't just die for a select few. Christ died for all. The gospel's available to all. As many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth or ever walk, will walk the face of the earth, has the opportunity and the responsibility to trust in Jesus Christ. Every person. So, what do we do with him? If we have that opportunity, do we show our love and our gratitude and our priority and our passion for him? Or do we kind of squander it and, and, and reject it and do nothing? See, for the one with five, look at it. He brings in five more. And he's called good and faithful. Because he was faithful in a few things, he's rewarded with more responsibility. The one who has two comes back and he says, I doubled it too. And God says, you've been good and faithful. Because you've been faithful in a few things, I'm going to reward you with more responsibility. Now, I believe this, this disparity also highlights kind of a secondary practical reality of ministry. Some are given more responsibility simply by the choice of God. 
There are men this morning that are preaching to 10,000 people, 20,000 people. I read an article yesterday that said there's a church that has 100,000 people in the United States. In Korea, and, and in, in, uh, well, in Korea, there are churches, hundreds of thousands of people. All right, so there's a pastor this morning preaching to 10,000. I'm not preaching to 10,000. There are missionaries and writers and singers that have a huge impact. Others uh, serve in relative obscurity. Some believers have the time and money and resources and gifting to, to give away thousands and tens of thousands and millions of dollars to, to advance the kingdom. Uh, some some are, are just called to be faithful where they are. Raising children. Working jobs with integrity, serving in the local church, being a witness to others. Well, are, is, is the pastor that's preaching to 25,000 then more important than me this morning? Is, is the person that's singing before uh, 4,000 people this morning more important than what these two did? Are our boxes less worthy because they're less? I mean, that's the mentality that the devil wants to push. And it's the mentality of a consumerism culture that we live in. But listen, the Bible says every role is important. And we may feel at times like we're lesser than, but it's not about numbers. It's about being faithful to the Lord where he calls us to serve. Because the enemy is going to keep pushing us. What difference are you making? Look at that person. Look at that person. Look at that person. Why aren't you like that? Why hasn't God honored you like that? Why don't you make a difference? First Corinthians says, every part of the body has a function. The ear is not more important than the eye, and the eye is not more important than the pancreas, and the pancreas isn't more important than the foot. Every believer plays a role for the kingdom of heaven. But what are we doing with that calling? Are we faithful to the Lord? Are we serving with love and commitment? Listen, even just because Jesus says we're faithful in a little, now he says, if you be faithful in just a little, I'll give you more and more. It's not about volume. It's about faithfulness. And we should have a far greater desire to hear Jesus someday say, well done, you were good and faithful, than to hear him say, I gave you a lot, you didn't do anything with it. Now that doesn't mean we just have to be content with a little bit. We want to be able to be such that God is able to give us large responsibilities because he knows we will be faithful and we will be trustworthy to carry them out. Listen, faithfulness is an incredibly incredibly underrated quality. It's not valued highly by our culture. It's shown by the divorce rate and the unemployment rate and the dropout rate and the, and the free agent rate in sports and the rate of resignation by pastors, the rate of churches that split, the, the rate of people that are walking with the Lord. It's a complete mess. All throughout our culture, the concept of faithfulness has been destroyed. Spouses aren't faithful to each other. Companies aren't faithful to their employees. Students aren't faithful to graduation. Teams aren't faithful to their players, and the players really don't care about the teams. And, and, and churches aren't faithful to their pastors, and pastors are struggling to be faithful to their calling, and people aren't faithful to the church or to the Lord. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. That's right, correct? We see that every single day. And yet, as much as our culture doesn't value faithfulness, we, we, we demand it of our leaders, maybe hypocritically, but we demand it. 
So as you watch the presidential race, notice that much of the debate is about who is honest and trustworthy. People question Hillary Clinton about emails and about the inconsistencies of her testimony. People question Donald Trump about whether he's just a bombastic or whether he really intends to do what he says. Now Ben Carson's being questioned about whether what he said about his background is real and whether he really had a heart upbringing. We're, we're constantly looking for something that we can trust. And yet right in front of us is the one we can trust. The one we can absolutely trust because the bottom line of the Christian walk is always faith. Do I trust the Lord? Not just for salvation. Salvation is wonderful. But do I trust Him every day? Do I trust Him to forgive me? Or am I caught up in all the guilt of my life that I, that I can't even ask God for forgiveness because I think I'm too far gone? Do I trust that his word is the correct way to live and that this this is my rule for living? Or do I kind of get cavalier about it and say, well, not really. Do I trust that when I die to self, that God won't take advantage of me or or take advantage of my surrender? Do I trust him that he will provide for what I need because he told me he would? Do I trust him to lead me well? Do I trust him to defend me? Do I trust him to protect me? Do I trust that living righteously is far better than living for myself. See, the problem with the third man is he doesn't have any trust. He doesn't believe in the Lord. He doesn't trust in the Lord. And the Bible says in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The test of your life this week will not be whether you trusted Christ for salvation. The trust of your life this week will whether you trust Christ on Monday afternoon or on Wednesday morning, or on Friday night, when things get difficult, and there's pain, or there's worry, or there's fear, or there's crisis, or you're, or you're struggling with temptation. That's the time when God says, let's see where your trust really is. And listen, we trust him. Let's close. We trust him because we're anticipating his return. This section from verse 1 all the way down to verse 30 is about having an eternal perspective instead of an earthly perspective. And listen, when we have an eternal perspective, it completely changes our outlook on life. We're almost scared to turn on the news now because of what's going to happen next. It's not random and far between anymore. It's pretty much every day. What's going to happen to the economy? What's the Dow going to do tomorrow morning based on what's going on in the world? What's going to happen with the election? What's the future of our country depending on who gets in power? What's going to happen if Iran gets a nuke and goes after Israel and the Middle East explodes? What, what, What are China and Russia up to? Because they seem to be partnering and that's very biblical. So, so we're pretty sure of the answer, but, but what's going to happen there? And, and, and can we go to the mall? Can we go to the sporting event? Can we go to Chicago and stand on the street? Because we don't know where the next attack's going to come from. And, and we're almost, I think, getting now, which is exactly what they want, intimidated to go to any public place with a lot of people because what's going to happen? That earthly perspective is so powerful, but God says you need to have a heavenly perspective. I'm in control. I put kings in power, and I take them out. Israel is protected by my hand, 
And when you call on my name, I will answer you because you're my people. I am a very present help in time of trouble. See, an eternal perspective gives us a greater understanding of our calling that we're not just supposed to hide in some cave and wait for Jesus to come back. We're to be active as we wait with one eye to the sky and the other eye to the focus on the spiritual condition of the world and the fact that we have the answer in Jesus Christ. We have the power to do it by the Holy Spirit. We have the calling of the Great Commission. We have the support of the body. And we have the responsibility to return Christ's investment. He's made a huge internal investment in us. One that cost Christ his life. So listen now, we're done. What return is he seeing on his investment in us? Are we playing it safe? Enjoying the fruit of his grace. So praise you, Lord, that you've given us your grace and that I'm saved and I'm going to the kingdom. But is that it? Are we just enjoying the fruit of what he's done and not bearing any fruit back? Not profiting his kingdom really in any way? Are we delighting in his presence? The fact that like he came down in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, now he's come down to live among us in Christ, and now we're filled with his spirit. Are we delighting in his presence? Or do we kind of not really think about it until we get to church or spend a little bit of time in the Word this week? When we worship, is it held back? Just kind of, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't really want to, people to hear my voice. Or are we worshiping with his whole heart? You guys sang so beautifully this morning. Just, just praising God. We're supposed to worship him with our whole heart. Are we hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Because he's transformed us and he's given us a new nature so that we don't have to be in bondage to sin and death that used to control us so completely and now we're freed of it. What is our return? What are we showing we've done with what Christ has given to us? It says, he who is faithful in just a little will be given much. And here's the added bonus. Look at the verse and we'll pray. He says, he's faithful and liberal will be given much. Now, enter into the joy of the master. What a gift we have been given. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. It's the old hymn. That, that's what God's done for us. Our lives should be praise of that gift. How do we praise God? Is it just coming into church for an hour and a half on Sunday and singing and studying and then going home? Or is praise expressed every single minute of the 168 hours we're going to get between now and the next time we gather in this church for the final time? What are we going to do with those hours? Because he's invested everything into us. Now, what are we returning back to him? Are we just burying it and saying, well, Lord, I'm, I'm just glad to be saved? Or are we saying, Lord, praise you. I want to honor you. I want to honor the investment you've made to me. And I'm going to live for you in such a way that when you come back, you'll be able to look at me. I don't know how. I'm humbled by it, Lord. But you'll be able to look at me and say, well done. You've, you've been faithful. There's nothing better. There's no higher praise 
that God can give us, and it's kind of a boring word, but there's no higher praise that God can give us than to say, Paul, you've been faithful. What I've given you, you've been faithful in. The responsibilities I've given you to raise a family, to be a husband, to do your job, to do the work of ministry, to live for me, to stand for me, to praise me, to call on my name. You've been faithful. And maybe nobody knows you and me for the rest of our lives. Maybe we never speak to 10,000. Maybe we never sing to 4,000. Maybe never write a book. Maybe never make a movie. Maybe nobody ever knows our name outside of this room. But you know what? If we're faithful, God will look at us and go, well done. Well done. You are honest and faithful to what I called you to.